welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Scott Nye. I'm David Bax. Tyler Smith is still out of commission, still recovering. He has moved to a new facility. Um, I haven't been yet. Um, I was supposed to go this week, but now it looks like there's some complications of the facility and I can't go. So who knows when I'll be able to see him, when I'll be able to record with him again. But until then, obviously, Scott's just as good. And you can help by going to battleshipretention.com and uh, looking for the uh, the page about Tyler's GoFundMe, which is pinned to the top of the homepage there at battleshipretention.com. It's also my pinned tweet on Twitter for as long as uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, um, so uh, that's what you can do to help Tyler. In the meantime, I guess, speaking of Twitter, it's still, it's changed, obviously, but it is still... It has its function as an outrage machine for me. Absolutely. Like that, that thing of like me getting unreasonably mad about something that I never would have heard of if I hadn't opened Twitter that day, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, early reactions to Ari Aster's Bo is afraid are, um, largely, I don't know, pretty negative, but enough to make me very interested in it. Uh, but there's been a rash of, at least coming up in my timeline, and I'm not going to name and shame here, but a couple of critics who's, or critics or maybe film journos, if you want to call them that, less than critics, whose reaction was, and you see this with, with movies in the past too, like Darren Aronofsky's mother or whatever, where the reaction is like, who greenlit this? Like, what right. was the studio thinking? What were the producers thinking? And um, I guess for certain film journalists, maybe that is their responsibility to think like that. But that way of thinking is so outlandish to me. <laughs> like, it is not my job as a film critic to put myself in the shoes of the money people, right? Yeah, it's some real loser really energy. <laughs> um, but like, is that who like... Is that who we're advocating for when we like, are there people who think of their jobs as, I don't know, like fantasy, like, like fantasy baseball general managers, like imagining, like, here's what the money people, here's what the, the suits did and didn't do right here. I I don't like, I find it. And I guess I am not going to try and be like too obtuse. Like I understand there's a market for that kind of box office analysis and like behind the scenes analysis. But the fact that there's a market for that still makes me kind of sad. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just a shift in audience approaches and who people are uh, dreaming of growing up to be or who they see as who they could be um, that they see somebody like, so use it Ari Aster. I've always heard Ari Aster. So I'm going to say Ari Aster. I don't know okay. if you have inside track, if you're I, good I friends with I Mr. Don't. Aster and can confirm or deny. Um, oh, Once again, Scott, it is time to be real while I'm. Oh my God. You got to record at different times. <laughs> this is too much. Okay. okay. I've been real. All right. Um, the hell was i saying oh right so they see something like an ari aster who like i i dig hereditary and midsummer Live. i haven't seen bo's afraid quite yet i guess by the time this episode comes out i most likely will have yeah. um but 
Nevertheless, he's obviously a striking and interesting filmmaker who is kind of proceeding to the beat of his own drama. And they see somebody like that and they don't see any kinship with even that approach to cinema. Um, Whereas perhaps if they were watching movies in, you know, the golden age of Hollywood, 50s or 60s in the mainstream cinema, even the more artistically adventurous stuff was a little bit more approachable, a little more comprehensible. And so the filmmaker was a little bit more um, on their level, as it were, and something that they could attune to. Whereas now um, individual voices are so marginalized in mainstream culture that the idea of feeling kinship with that is very foreign to a certain type of film goer. And certainly a lot of people who write about films, whereas the idea of, yeah, playing like fantasy football with it is something they can kind of wrap their head around. And so then the money people become their kind of, uh, I don't know, avatars within the industry, the people that they could see themselves being and secretly want to be because they don't perceive it as having as much risk and um, but a greater payoff, perhaps. I don't know. That's kind of my comprehension of it is, yeah, I, it does feel a little bit like playing with action figures and not um, reckoning with whatever's in a film for good or ill. But does it also make you sad? Um, yeah. I don't know about sad. I, I just think they're kind of pathetic. Like, um, I don't feel like that. I feel like that kind of thinking is more prolific than the voices you hear about it, if that makes sense. Like, obviously that kind of thinking is what drives so much of mainstream filmmaking, but the, you know, I saw more people dunking on those tweets than agreeing with them, you know, and maybe it's just, but is that that just our, a finely our, curated field. Yeah. It yeah, could that's be. A, yeah. That's our feed. Yeah. But, um, that's my pleasure, I guess, is that I don't have to be too uh, worried or saddened by what might be a majority opinion, because for me, it remains a minority. Um, but it's maybe hard to it's, say. It's, I think maybe it's, I get frustrated because I still, there's a part of me that is still an idealist who believes in people. Ah, yes. And, like, I, if I see something like this like you know say this is very similar to what we were talking about at the top of the show last week about like anti-intellectualism and making fun of uh the succession guys for saying dramaturgically you know right. like it, it makes me sad that people don't like are, are don't want to think like that and, and don't want to take art seriously because i have this I have this belief in the potential of people. I still am a cynic at the same time who thinks that most people, like I think that all people are born like inherently selfish. Um, and, um, but I also believe in the potential of people to be, always be better versions of themselves individually. And also for the potential of the people to be better. And, um, when I see something like this, that seems like backsliding or, or, or just going in the wrong direction in general, uh, I guess that's why it makes me sad. Yeah, I mean, I think it bothers me more if it's a higher level platform. Like every now and again, every few years, New York Times or some similarly prestigious publication will publish some op-ed about how 
you know, yeah, movies like this or Mother or whatever artistically driven films are secretly the enemy and the good people are the ones who watch mainstream superhero movies or whatever. Um, that always makes me sad because then it's like there's a lot of people making an editorial decision and knowing that they're shaping the culture and are choosing to shape the culture around where it is already shaped, not challenging it. When it's some jag off in his Twitter feed who we all get to dunk on, it's yeah. kind of like, to me, for a movie like Bo's Afraid, it's kind of good for the movie. Um, you know, if for some reason true, yeah. he picked as his target, I, I don't know, the new like Christian Manjou film or something like so marginal and within culture that it's like to dunk on it would f- certainly further denigrate standing. Uh, for a movie like Bo's Afraid, which is mainstream adjacent, I, I kind of feel like, you know, it's good for it's good for the whole culture to have people who are that angry about uh, art to then have people be like, well, it can't be that bad. <laughs> you know, it yeah. kind of like it is the same reason that I never really uh, got upset when people got pissed off about John Goddard movies, um, because like they're the kind of movies that are, are designed to enrage people and are going to, by their nature, upset somebody. So um, get the conversation out there. But does it see now I'm turning this in from the like top of show, like mini topic into like a <laughs> real topic, because like if someone is, if someone is getting mad at a Jean-Luc Godard film in the way that that film is, is intended to be antagonistic as many of his films are, I guess I like that. But if someone is getting mad at like, you see, I I feel like I saw a lot of sentiment around the time of his his death. A lot of people pushing back uh, about the idea that no one could, no one could possibly really like this, mm-hmm. and anyone anyone who says they like Godard or or films of in that strata are like putting on a show. Yeah, sure, I'm with you there. But in those in that case, then they're t- picking a fight with me. <laughs> it's not with the film. <laughs> like fight with the film all day. We should be fighting with the film, right? Right. But when you're picking on the audience, who like you're just assuming is making it up because you can't imagine it, then that speaks to a larger close-mindedness. Whereas if you just think like someone really did a big swing and a miss on a movie, and you think it's you know, in the words of one of these tweets, a career killer. Um, <laughs> that that's that's good marketing you know that's that's the kind of movie that people want some a certain crowd wants to go out and see is something yeah. that adventurous yeah i remember i don't think she ever did but i remember when i was a teenager my mom saying she was interested in seeing kevin smith's dogma when it came out for the simple reason that there was like controversy around it yeah exactly <laughs> yeah a little controversy in art is is good you know they can't all yeah. be uh warm and fuzzy everything ever all once movies where we all you know learn lessons can we you need to have a few movies that piss people off. Yeah. More than a few. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, um, before we go any further, I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com. Not you, Scott. You already know, but the listeners, I want to tell the listeners about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. I use them each and every day. Uh, today I was listening. Well, here's the thing. I, people who know me i used to have a podcast called previously on and then i had a podcast called hey watch this and there was a while there i was a real tv guy when tv was something that i felt needed to be defended <laughs> and now, now t- overwhelmed now, with it not tv is something that needs to be defended against uh, um <laughs> because i mean I, I it's it's i'm sort of like brad pitt in babylon like getting my wish but on like a monkey monkey's paw type of way like tv is taken seriously and also has like it's 
its parameters and possibilities have been severely reduced and homogenized. Um, uh, and that's very uh, unfortunate. This is all to say that I don't watch as much new, new TV as I used to. Uh, so I have not watched the buzzy new Netflix series Beef. Um, but I did listen to the soundtrack twice today. Uh, the score is by a guy named Bobby Krillick. I'm not sure if that's how you say his name. He's from a group called the Hacks and Cloak. Um, and he's he's sort of gotten into... Uh, uh, film and now I guess television scores uh, recently and uh, I don't know Natalie has started watching beef and said she likes it a lot so um, maybe I will give it a shot someday but for now I'm happy to know that Bobby Krillick's music for beef is uh, is fantastic um, and it sounded great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds tweakedaudio.com is where you go I already said all that. Um, they're available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Scott? You um, you, you saying that I already know about Tweaked Audio reminded me of one of my favorite tweets of yours. You may have forgotten about, but I think about often when I'm listening to podcasts. Which you said something like, is it possible to be too aware of Stamps.com? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's always like, um, it goes through phases. I, I, I kind of like mostly have stopped listening to podcasts and it's not a, it's unlike TV, it's not a judgment against podcasts. I still love them as a, as a format. I just like the pandemic rearranged my brain and I'm kind of an all music guy all the time now, but I know it would go through is like, yeah, stamps.com. And then it was like Casper mattresses and then like me undies. Yep. Um, uh, yeah, because that reminds—I can't remember who it was. Um, um, it also had a tweet about <laughs> that was met better than my tweet, which was <laughs> something like, uh, "People are forgetting the true, uh, the 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 true reason for podcasting, which is re-traumatizing the families of murder victims in exchange for <laughs> me and these money." <laughs> um, so anyway. Uh, yeah, let's uh but let's set that aside and let's get into it, shall we? Absolutely. Listeners, eagle-eyed listeners, long-time listeners may have noticed that the number attached to this episode is a number that is evenly divisible by 10 and yet not evenly divisible by 50, which means yes, once again, it is time to do a profile. We are going to profile uh, a film a uh, film related artist who has passed away somewhat recently. Um, and listeners might've also already guessed, uh, or I already said that we're not doing Angelo Badalamenti. We already, uh, devoted an episode to him actually. Um, but not an official profile episode because I, um, as Ty Tyler had asked me when I told him after we did Straub Houlet and I told him we were doing this next, he was like, are you trying to lose listeners? <laughs> um, which I apparently, like, I think, I think again, like I was saying earlier, I think the most of people, so I, I feel like our listeners, I assume they are as adventurous as I am and as curious as I am. I don't know if that's true. We have lost listeners, so I don't know if it's because they're less adventurous or more likely it's just because everyone likes Tyler more than they like me. Hmm. Uh, 
which is very possible. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so we are going to be covering the at least film related career of the late, uh, Canadian artist, Michael Snow, Canadian American. He worked a lot in America, but he's Canadian by birth and, and made a lot of his, his films and other artworks there. That's something I like, I, was when I when he died, I was reading about him a lot as a filmmaker, and then like I watched a bunch of his films in preparation for this. But then I also read a book on his work and realized just how prolific he was as uh, a sculptor mm. and, uh, and a painter and um, a, a variety of other uh, media. Um, but yeah, I didn't know michael snow before he died that's luckily as we were talking about before like well a well curated twitter feed can make me aware of someone and it's it's sad that it took him dying um for me to realize and then coincidentally shortly after the sight and sound list released released because they had done the 100 last fall but then they yeah. released hey here's the top 250 and and wavelength was on there um so i guess i would have uh come become more aware of him anyway uh shortly but uh what was your familiarity with at least the name michael snow before he passed away um really just wavelength by reputation um and as a movie that i had tried to see multiple times and kept getting foiled so um cine family back when you know it was a thing um it was like 2012 i want to say did a screening of it but i had a terrible cold that day Blackman did a screening of it, but I was out of town. And then one of the times I was in New York last year, Anthology screened it, but it was on a night I already had tickets to a show. It's like I constantly got foiled from seeing Wavelength. Yeah. I finally watched it for the purpose of this episode, not in the theater as I would have liked. But um, yeah, really most of my knowledge around him was pretty much Wavelength-based and kind of digging in for this episode. Uh, I, I still think that's his best film, but um, and I can understand why it's kind of his most acclaimed work but um i was really struck by how many really terrific even great films are uh in his filmography even out of the i mean i saw almost half of the films that are listed as his letterboxed um so oh. i got a good chunk out of the way but like i didn't see there's a four hour one i didn't see and a four hour one yeah um and What's that one a, called because i know there's La, La Region Centrale is three hours. Yeah, I saw that. Um, the oh, four-hour okay. one is Ramu's Nephew by Diderot, oh. thanks to Dennis Young by Wilma Schoen. Schoen? Yeah. I, and I did, um, in part of my research, I didn't see that, but I did read some of his, like I guess, screenplay, or however you would call it. Uh, I don't sure. know how to call it. Uh, but I did read uh, an ex in, in this this book, this uh October Files book on the work of Michael Snow here. Uh, you're showing it to nobody. You already showed it to me in person. You. Yeah, yeah you showed it to me in person like yeah. two days ago. <laughs> um, um, it does have an excerpt of this the, the script for Ramon's nephew, so I have an idea of what goes on in that. But um, so I guess uh, are we going to? Uh, I think we should go by the IMDb uh, chronology. Do you think? Sure. I Even know. Uh, yeah. I know from having again from having read this book that these aren't necessarily in the order that they were produced. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing with most avant-garde artists and we ran into this with the Godard episode too, is you end up kind of guessing as to like, you know, go by, you know, release dates, but it's like, when does an avant-garde film get released? You know, it it, it gets screened to small crowds that then become slightly larger crowds. And then it just, it's a film that gets shown from time to time in art galleries. 
Um, yeah. But yeah, the IMDb list makes as much sense to me as anything. I have the letterbox list up because that's helping me keep track of which ones I saw. Okay. Well, um, by IMDb, I'm starting with Wavelength, unless you have seen either of the ones that are listed before Wavelength. Um, I have seen New York Eye and Ear Control. Um, but that's, this is what I'm saying. Nah, IMDb, yes, I have also seen New York Eye and Ear Control, but that's not going to come up till later, according to IMDb. All right. Well, was produ- keep- that was produced in 1964 and Wavelength is 67. Yeah, but- I'll, I'll keep skipping between my two lists and see if I can keep up. In that case, yes, Wavelength will be first. Okay. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I'm jealous of you because you watched um, through means that I will not elaborate on a higher quality version of this than I did. Um, but I still think the, the power of it um, came through, if not some of the... Uh, specifics of 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 what's depicted uh but this is like you said his most famous film um it is uh it it consists of a 46 minute i think um zoom across a a room that is mostly empty but not always empty it is sometimes occupied by different people doing different things uh including dying Uh, um um but the 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 zoom forward is inexorable but not monotonous because also there are changes in in light and uh and other things but the other constant is the um the sound which is a sine wave that starts low and gets slowly higher um which like brings to mind the funny story of when I watched it, Natalie was not home when I started it and I was watching it. And because the sine wave keeps getting gradually higher at the same pace, it hadn't really like sunk into me just like how piercing it is in the last yeah. like 10, 10 minutes. And so Natalie comes <laughs> in and she was like, what is going on? Is there a fire alarm I should be aware of? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, there's, I mean, there's a reason it's his best known, film um it's it's really uh viscerally powerful stuff and um it it does things to my brain that are not unlike the reason that i listen to some like extreme heavy metal oh sure you know like it's really obliterating in terms of like you were you can only watch this like you can only focus on this while it's happening um yeah what were your I, thoughts i um you described it in the way that it's often been described to me which i think is inaccurate both in terms of the experience of watching it and in the literal terms of how it must have been made which there's like it's described often as a 45 minute zoom, which one is impossible given the technology at the time, they yeah, still had yeah. magazines to change in cameras and two pretty quickly in watching, you can tell the way it's progressing across the room. There are cuts in there. Like, yeah, I, I think there's occasional zooms, but for the most part, it's getting closer by cutting to a yeah. shot setup. That's closer to uh, its eventual target, which I don't know. Spoiler alert is a picture of the wave. Um, it's yeah. It's a picture of the ocean. But each successive cut complicates the um, like formal nature of the film. So it gets into arenas where you get like double exposure going on. Um, the color of the stock changes violently, I would say. Um, and the subjects within it are constantly changing to the extent that it's either like 
time hopping and or even potentially some kind of like ghost story. It really reminded me a lot of like horror films and specifically ghost movies in it really felt like a haunted house. And the fact that, yeah, it kind of culminates in somebody dying and somebody trying to report it. It just feels like there's a lot of things happening within this room that are kind of piling up on top of each other over either spiritual or temporal planes. Um, and which, yeah, in turns is horrifying, thrilling, um, aesthetically exciting at the beginning, quite peaceful as they're just like sitting around grooving to the Beatles. Um, That's right. Yeah. Strawberry fields forever. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But um, the total experience of it is, yeah, really harrowing and definitely my favorite of all the films I watched for this. And I hate to peek mm-hmm. early with it, but um, I'm, I've been thinking about redoing kind of my favorite films list. And this is one of the few I've seen over the past, like six to 12 months that I could, I could imagine really upsetting the list in a pretty significant way. Um, yeah. I was really, really taken and genuinely shaken by it. Yeah, I don't think it's a hot take to say it's the best. It's all I, I would also agree it's the best of his films. Uh, so we are starting off with the best. But it also, um, I think, illustrates why Michael Snow might be a good, like, gateway for avant-garde films. Mm, sure. um, this this film and, and a couple others for a reason. Again, reading these essays about him, it's amazing. Different, it's not amazing, but it's notable how many, like, different writers compare him not compare him to but compare him against stan brackage not in a way that it's like negative about stan brackage but how he represents a very different mode of experimental filmmaking than stan brackage because stan brackage and filmmakers of his ilk were i think intentionally trying to counteract the narrative assumptions that we have of a film like Mm -hmm. Wreckage films are meant to be experienced moment to moment in, in many ways. Whereas Michael Snow is in this and other films very much interested in setting up sort of expectations and forward Mm -hmm. momentum. And there's a lot of like one thing follows and next in a logical, like the zoom forward, but also the sine wave uh, uh, is being set on this trajectory and, and starting in one place and ending up in another place. That's a thing you're going to see a lot. I think in 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 his work that it's like this the this movie takes 46 minutes because he had something that he needed to do that took that long like duration yeah. duration and 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 then it also makes his films some of his films they're not narratives necessarily but there is that sense of like expectation like i said like there is that sense of like sitting at your seat being like i this is almost like a suspense movie i know where this is going but i have to like sit through it and watch and see what's going to happen next. Um, uh, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, I, I, I think, um, and I think it also gets in, and this, this movie has this, a lot of his movies are funny or have funny parts yes, in them. For sure. And um, that's also a big, um, uh, uh, I think reason that this would be a, uh, a good in- entry point to, to avant-garde cinema, because the idea or the, the, public notion or whatever received notion of avant-garde cinema is that it's very self-serious and, and boring and, and, uh, and dense and hard to unpack. Uh, but, um, there's a lot going on in Michael Snow's films that you could make it all that, but they're also, many of them are just like fun to watch. Yeah. I think that's a good thing to note as we kind of kick this episode off is that, um, for as much as avant-garde cinema 
does get that rap and which yeah there's you know you read one such book or at least most of it there's doubtless the other volumes about michael snow's yeah. work as much as there's analysis galore about the work a lot of it is just like cool shit that's really cool to watch and yeah. like wavelength definitely falls into that realm of like there's enough going on beat by beat that it's really electrifying and exciting and just like yeah. a cool thing to throw on even if you're just kind of half watching it you know which a lot of these were designed to be shown in like art galleries on a loop um as kind of like a background thing and i don't think that's an inappropriate way to necessarily approach it um yeah so yeah um just um little trivia uh the people who come in and out of the room uh include uh hollis frampton the experimental filmmaker is is appears appears and also amy tobin the 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 oh, film cool. critic amy tobin is one of them and that also I, I read um that he there's there's definitely sexual content in a lot of his work but it seems like that's often in his process a place that he would start like often a lot of his works seem to like in his initial co conception be way more sexually forward mm -hmm. than frank um uh then then um um then they ended up and that's maybe just a process he has to go through um but there was like early titles for um this included like the cunt room and like <laughs> instead of wavelength thigh length and also um he was i guess initially going to have amy tobin um mime masturbation uh yeah. when she was on screen which um yeah, I guess that would have been fun, but um, I, I look up to Amy Tobin as a uh, <laughs> an elder in in, in uh, the critical sphere. Uh, so that would have been a strange uh, thing to see. Indeed, uh, yeah. As much as like sometimes Amy Tobin's writing and podcast appearances kind of piss me off. Sometimes she has the credits to back it up. Uh, yeah. Co-starring in Wavelengths certainly among them. Yeah. Um. So next up for me is back and forth or that's how people say it it's it's what left carrot bracket yeah right dash 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 like right carrot bracket uh is yes, that nice for you too uh or did you did not see this one see no i did i'm trying to remember oh i did see standard time okay um about which there isn't a lot to say um it's <sighs> crap i pulled up the description of it to make sure i'm thinking of the right michael snow movie because i watched all these in very quick succession but i'm pretty sure it's the one where nope i'm thinking of a different one shit what is standard time about <laughs> um that let's just skip it it's an eight minute film that i don't remember very much of okay well then we'll go on to back and forth uh which i also loved uh, yeah back and forth is very cool uh it's the 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 premise is the camera is on i guess a tripod in a classroom and the camera just goes as the title suggests back and forth sometimes very slowly sometimes very very quickly uh but always accompanied by at the around the end of each before it turns back the other way there's a like a, a metronome type of yeah. uh, uh sound but it's like intentionally i think kind of frustrating because it's not as specifically mechanical is what i was talking about before like it like that metronome sound sometimes is a bit early or sometimes a bit late like it uh, or or maybe the metronome's on time and the camera is moving uh uh just not quite according to like this it's there's still a very handmade feel to to back and forth um 
Yeah, I mean, I'd say on that note, the the pans back and forth are not, as far as I could tell, they don't seem to be like kind of robotically controlled. They seem to probably have put stoppers in there, but it seems like a person's moving it because the movements are so irregular and strange. Yeah. Um, And uh, yeah, like as you were saying with Wavelength, it's not all because it's not all one shot. This one's 52 minutes. Um, It it has cuts and and, uh, people come in and out of the room or people outside the window you see like um you you see someone like uh isn't there someone cleaning outside and then there's a cop who comes and looks at the window yeah um, and then i think at one point michael snow is outside the window oh that's uh, very cool i think so there's not a lot of um uh works of his own that he's in there are two very notable uh works of photography um mm. there's one that he made that's really cool called authorization that was the cool thing about this book you can see all these like reproductions or or, you know pictures of his work authorization is he took a picture of himself in the mirror but with the camera on a tripod and then he took that picture and he put it on the mirror and took a picture of that Hmm. and put that on the mirror and then took and so as the as you follow, it's all one thing, but as you follow sort of clockwise, his face and the apparatus become more and more obscured by yeah. the other pictures. It's it's very cool. And then there's also one that's um, called Venetian blinds. That's before we're using the word selfie. It's just a bunch of selfies he took of himself in Venice with his eyes closed, <laughs> <laughs> which actually, I mean, I'm saying that because it's funny, but also like, wordplay and puns kind of come up a lot i think yeah, in, totally. in his work um so anyway uh the other thing i wanted to say about back and forth that you actually said about wavelength is um you you i can't remember what your word you used but that there was some sort of like some certain parts are a little frightening yeah um and i think back and forth with those like brief glimpses here and there yeah. there is a sense of like like a, a horror movie type of sense of like the next time we turn something could be in the doorway or something you know i almost let out like a little like jump when there was like a figure in the window all of a sudden because for the first several minutes of the pans back and forth inside the classroom there's like nothing going on yeah. and then at some point yeah it pans around and there's like i think somebody's sitting in a chair even in the middle of the room and like kind of in the shadows and yeah. i was like what the hell <laughs> did i just yeah. see that yeah and then later on there's like a bunch of people in the room yeah after that it starts to become kind of part of the rhythm of it but those first couple of times were like you kind of get into a rhythm of it just being this empty classroom and just panning back and forth and there really being no difference in the um uh kind of uh, arrangement of the classroom but and there's enough like little skips in the film already just because it's like old and beat up that you're they they just kind of register as splices so when they're actual cuts finally um, they don't really register as that. And then figures just start appearing. Um, this one actually kind of reminded me of uh, David Lauer's A Ghost Story in the way that it okay. seems to like kind of occupy the space and see the different figures who float in and out of it. Um, and ultimately the space is kind of the main character until that space too becomes like so abstract as the camera moves faster and faster and faster. Um Let's move on then to One Second in Montreal. Did you watch One Second in Montreal? No, I can only find this in really shitty quality, so I, I skipped it. Yeah, I, I watched it in really shitty quality. And I, and I think I, should, I would like to watch it again in good quality because I've the the game of it didn't really like occur to me maybe because of the quality while I was watching it. Um, and also just an extra textual note, because if I'm looking at IMDb, it says 
silent succession of black and white photographs reflecting nearly empty streets from the city of Montreal, which it is. But what I've since learned is that all the locations he photographed were like different angles of like proposed construction sites for like a fair yeah. or something. That's you wouldn't know that not watching the movie, but that's uh, part of it. But yeah, it's 18 minutes. It doesn't last one second, but I think the one second refers to that. It's all still uh, uh, photographs. What I, what didn't really occur to me while I was watching it that I would like to watch again is that again, he's playing with duration. There's a very mechanical thing of the pace at which the, um, the, uh, uh, images change at the beginning. They're pretty rapid, pretty rapid changes. And then as it gets to the middle, he hangs on images longer and longer at a time. And then it gets to the middle and then it goes back the other way and they start getting shorter and shorter by the end. They're, mm. they're, they're rapid again. Um, uh, which uh, led at least one critic that I read to uh, refer to it as his most musical film hmm. uh, in the sense that it seems to follow that sort of like a, like a composition, I guess. Um, interesting stuff. Yeah. I would like to see it in a better, uh, um, a, a, a better, I don't know. In Transfer? Yeah. So I have nothing till 1972 now. Let's see. I know you got... saw the region central. Yeah, I sure and did. I, I read extensively about a casing shelved, and I wish I could see that. Yeah, um, casing shelved looked in really interesting. I can. Yeah, it's literally either. just a shot of his shelf, and he is like narrating, talking you through the things that are on his shelf. But like, like I said, comedy comes up a lot of his. I guess there are a lot of like digressions or like sure. things he can't quite remember that are supposed to be funny. It sounds really, really cool. A casing shelved, but. Uh, didn't watch that, but you watched the region central all three hours of it, right? Yeah, I sure did. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a trek. Um, so the setup of it as such is that, um, Michael snow basically got a robotic arm and pre-programmed a series of camera movements for that arm to execute and then threw a 60 millimeter camera on it and let it go to work and shot it over the course of 24 hours in this very desolate area. I was trying to look up the name of the place, um, but I can't skim and talk fast enough. So somewhere, somewhere in, East, in Eastern Canada is what this yeah. says. Um, and also the, the, um, the thing isn't just a robotic arm. He actually had it commissioned for this purpose yeah. It is called the camera activating machine or cam. And um, the the cam also would like existed as like a work of sculpture. It like there were, there were, there were after Louis, he didn't just make Louisian Central. He also like would bring this to places and like people would come to watch it with, instead of a 16 millimeter camera, a like closed circuit video camera on it. So people could watch people would watch it as it moved around an art gallery. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. Um, Camera activating machine. Yeah. Um, The experience of watching it as, you know, one might expect given that kind of aesthetic setup is alternately really, really dull and really, really exciting. Um, Sometimes it's, you know, this very kind of rhythmic movement that kind of lulls you into a good groove. Like you think of like a Bellatar kind of thing, or actually running a lot of Tarkovsky because it's kind of this like, empty landscape, kind of foggy, you know, you can tell it's a little chilly Canadian wilderness area. Um, but also has this like kind of droning sound on the soundtrack 
that kind of remind me of like stalker um and sometimes it kind of falls in that rhythm sometimes it's like the camera's really hyperactive and spinning all over the place and towards the end especially it kind of reaches this big like crescendo of movement and then sometimes it's like shooting a whole lot of nothing for minutes on end and uh you're just kind of hanging with it um so it's hard to like i don't know quote unquote recommend it or really know what to draw out of it other than to say that it's definitely um it's it puts the experiment in experimental i think one of the things that i also wanted to address at the top was the difference and sometimes overlap between avant-garde and experimental filmmaking, at least to me. Um, avant-garde filmmaking, I think, is a lot of times something like a wavelength where the filmmaker knows what they want to do. They're, the technique with which they might execute it might be adventurous or unknown or a little surprising, but they're essentially taking tools that they understand and executing them towards uh, an end that hasn't been previously explored in film or whatever the show's medium is. Experimental cinema, though, or any experimental art is like, will this work? I don't know. Let's find out. Um, and so La Region Central is definitely in more of the experimental realm where, you know, he had the resources to get this uh, cam commissioned. Um, apparently came at the recommendation of IMAX co-founder Graham Ferguson um, to kind of pursue this. And so it really seemed to be, I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to call it like a gearhead exhibition kind of thing, but it's very much like, let's kind of see where the future of filmmaking is heading and what we can do with it. Um, because now like, yeah, erotically programming your camera movements is very, very common in mainstream filmmaking, but you know, in the late 1960s, uh, or early seventies, whenever this ended up being shot, it was released, quote unquote, released in 71, um, almost unheard of. And so, uh, it's definitely tapping into the edges of what cinema could be at the time and then doing everything you could with that idea of the setup. So the idea that, yeah, they're taking this brand new technology and doing everything you can with it right away kind of puts to shame anything you could do after that, which is already very interesting. Um, like I said, at three hours, I don't know that it's going to be for everybody, but if you've already watched a few of these Michael Stone films and you're intrigued, it's well worth adding to uh, that list. A uh, couple of the notes about it. Um, yeah, it was September 14th, 1970 is the day they started. They were there the 14th through the 20th. So I don't know okay. if they shot multiple, a bunch they didn't use or or what, but they were there for, for five days, essentially. Um it's roughly 650 kilometers north of Quebec City. Um, and then I also wanted to... Oh, yeah, the, the, the people who made it with him, uh, Pierre Abelous, I think, was the name of the main like engineer, and then Joyce Wieland and Bernard Goussard. And apparently, to your point of, will this work, when, um, when Michael Snow commissioned this, he didn't tell Pierre Abelous that he was planning on using it out in the wilderness. <laughs> and so there, there actually was some question of like, is this thing going to fall apart in the snow or sleet or wind or whatever? Like yeah. it's kind of made for like an indoor uh, function, which it went on to be, uh, but Hey, it worked. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, but yeah, not, not his longest film, as I mentioned at the top, but um, yeah. up there, some of these films, you know, are only a couple minutes, but uh, this one's a trek. Um, okay. So now we can talk about New York I and ear control, even though it was produced in 1964. Yeah. But, uh, I says it's 1972 film. 
this is um uh again i'm glad that i read about this because it's a bunch of shots of a cutout of a woman's silhouette like a side view of a woman walking silhouette um and uh it's all over the city and things happen to it it gets it gets essentially drowned and burned and all these different yeah. things um all while this uh um really aggressive high-pitched free jazz type of music is playing that i really dug by the way i was all about um, it yeah yeah uh when i what i didn't realize is that that silhouette is known as a woman the woman walking and he for years had a series of like sculptures that were based on hmm. this this silhouette called called the woman walking or just ww series and so new york i and New York control was kind of within the story of his career kind of his like grand farewell to the woman walking even though it's not the woman walking does show up again but um not in never in this uh um prominent uh a display yeah i i really don't have a lot of uh cohesive critical thoughts on this other than to say that i just really dug the vibe um mm -hmm. it's a lot of cool shots of a period of history that i'm into and a period especially of new york history um where it's kind of on the cusp of the 60s revolution and still inheriting a bit of the 50s beatnik culture where you get through the jazz um music especially and i, I just something about the uh, silhouette of the woman that feels kind of of a piece with that time period where there's a little bit of like an advertising angle to it um yeah. but not like so, yeah but not yeah. so digested by that that it's just like a pure i don't know like uh travelogue or ad for visiting new york you know you can <laughs> see how this kind of setup could be repurposed for like new york travel board or whatever um but as it is it just kind of feels like um I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm just kind of grabbing this conclusion as I'm talking about it, but it just kind of feels like being in the city. You know, you get kind of like thrown into the mess of things, uh, can feel a bit flattening at times, can feel like been burned or squished or whatever else. But yeah. um, it uh, is just a really cool way to spend a half hour um, to dig into this freeform jazz and this kind of vaguely formed film. Yeah. Uh, so, what's next for you? Let's see. Oh, you got Ramo's nephew. Ramo's nephew. No, I didn't actually watch oh, it. Um, watch it. Okay. No. Um, the next one it for me is Presence. Oh, I didn't watch Presence either. But I does that one also have the woman walking in it? I know I read about there's one that around this time that does have an appearance. I mean, I'm thinking uh, else. It might. Um, is do you have anything? But I guess between. No, I have the one after this is my next one. Okay, cool. Uh, Presence uh, is an interesting film. So um, it starts out as, um, gosh, how do you even describe this? Um, there's a giant set um, that, it's, uh, that there's a, a woman lying asleep in it naked. We referenced his uh, kind of infrequent and semi-engaged eroticism. Uh, yeah. This was, I think, the most overtly erotic film I saw of his, at least in the way it starts. Um, so there's a long shot of a woman sleeping naked. Uh, I think either there's a knock on her door or the robe rings. She gets up, shows us everything she's got, and then puts on a robe <laughs> and um, walks over to the door. 
the camera tracks her walking over the door, but not by the camera moving. Instead, the entire set moves. And so the camera's following her as she gets closer to the door, but not out of the camera moving. It's just because the set's moving in opposition to the way in which she's moving. Um, and at first, it's like slow and steady enough that it's just a little bit like, well, something here is not right. But then like she gets to the where she opens the door and stops and like the bookshelf behind her like kind of sways a little bit. And you're like, well, that's unusual. And then she lets in this guy. They have a conversation which sends both of them kind of walking back and forth across the apartment. And it keeps tracking them that same way um, with the set moving back and forth. And then they start moving faster. And like the actors are trying to keep up with the set moving too, which is (laughs) really fun and exciting to watch. Um, And then like 20 minutes in or so, it really starts to go off the rails. I mean, I guess quite literally the, the set seems to start falling apart and the camera's like lurching into it, like running into scenery and stuff like that. And everything is like falling apart. <laughs> uh, so the first like half hour of this is like a plus I was all in after that. There's another hour of more kind of just like free form. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to just be so dismissive to call it off and guard bullshit, but it's just like random shots across the city of, I don't know where some Canadian place. Um, and various other locales that I couldn't find any kind of cohesive thing to. So that's why I'm saying like the woman walking silhouette could have been there. Maybe I was uh, in and out of you know my own attention span with it because it's just like such dissociative shots that last all of, I don't know, probably 15 seconds a piece, maybe 30 at the outside and an hour of that, it does start to wear a little bit um so yeah the first half hour of this was like the coolest thing but i'm not sure how that all of that connects to uh what comes in the second two-thirds of the film uh okay did you watch so is this yes i did really yeah, liked I, it. Lo- I i love so is this and and uh yeah i hadn't even thought of it until you mentioned the woman walking thing or the new york guy in your control thing being um like akin to advertisement like so is this definitely has that um some of that same, like, it's very graphic. Um, in, I mean, not like graphic, like, I don't mean like it's graphically violent. Yeah, it's yeah. literally, it's literally graphics because it's literally just text for 48 minutes. Yeah. Um, Surprisingly engaging though. Yeah. And it's, I'm, I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, it's one long sentence, right? There's not, uh, no, there's periods. Oh, there are periods. Okay. Yeah. But, um, uh, the, basically it's just there's no sound at all um no music or or anything uh and it's just yeah words appearing and not not just words at random there's a you can it's very engaging because you could sit and read the whole movie which is what you're supposed to do uh one at a time in i think helvetica font i'm not a font head but i think it's yeah, helvetica. I, your guess is good mine um but also this the font size changes so that the word is always basically taking up as much of the screen as it can, you know? Yeah. So if it's a longer word, it's a smaller font. A big word is a, is a big font. Um, and, uh, yeah, I wish, uh, you know, I watched this one kind of early on and I wish I had, um, watched it more recently because I remember having some thoughts about what the movie, uh, was and the, and the kind of like, uh, well, uh, again, I'm borrowing from essays that I've, read now but i did have thoughts along these lines about 
Michael Snow's kind of fascination with the the difference to the extent that there is one between a thing and a representation of the thing. Hmm. Um, so uh, this is a movie that is the title. The entire movie is the title of the movie. In theory, that's at least the way it plays. Yes. Yeah. The, it's called so is this because the phrase like that actually comes up like this is the title of the movie so is this yeah um uh and and so um it does sort of start to make you question like what you're what you're watching and what a uh what a title of a movie has to do with representing the movie um uh and again maybe that's my mind because i was just like uh uh, at TCM Fest, and we watched a movie that had a different on-screen title. Uh, um, oh, called Mr. Mr. Cohen takes a walk, but the on-screen oh, yeah. title it was Father Takes a Walk, which Leonard Malton explained was done for TV viewings because they wanted to sort of de-emphasize <laughs> the movie. Uh, um, I mean, we can get this in the TCM episode. We read that it was uh, to exhibit the film in less friendly countries towards the Jewish people in the 1930s. I see. I see. Um, in any case, like, so I'm having these thoughts about like, uh, superficially, yes, I'm just watching a bunch of words, but I'm also watching kind of a movie that questions like where the title and the movie starts the thing and the mm. representation of the thing. But it's also often very funny, although yeah. there is one unfortunate like Japanese joke, I don't remember, like, I... about the... um it's it's a like an R and L switching joke. Like he uses right, ah, and, yes. he uses the word right and the word light. I think in short succession, and then has some joke about like a Japanese accent that like doesn't really hold up that well. No, uh, not so much. But um, yeah, his a lot of his stuff is 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 playful. Um, I meant to mention actually when you were talking about La Region Centrale, one of these essays in here is actually a critique of Michael Snow's work by another contemporary artist named Thierry did Duve, I think. Um, and uh, he called the region central Michael Snow's only masterpiece, by the way. Uh, but also he had like some surprisingly nice things to say about. So is this because he hates the idea of overly self-referential postmodernism, but um, uh, because he, he's, he's saying that so many people who use it are um, self-conscious and trying not to be too exposed by mm. just being self-referential whereas michael snow is willing to follow the idea a little further uh i don't know i've talked too much about so is this what what, what did you think no uh that's actually an interesting thought to, that i hadn't really considered in in that way um i swear i won't link everything to jean-luc godard but um <laughs> godard is certainly another filmmaker who used yes uh kind of postmodernism to become more personal and certainly the graphic elements of this uh bear a lot in common with his work as well um yeah i i mostly responded to this because of that intersection of self-awareness humor and a hint towards something more personal there's like beats in the film where he's like eventually I'll tell you about like all my emotional hangups and I can't remember what he gets into, but he's like, and we'll consider social conscious things that will change the world or something like that. And it's like, kind of like <laughs> a play on the need for this to be important at all. Um, yeah, yeah. But like, there's also like it, towards the beginning, he's like, the film will go for two hours or maybe this is lying to you. <laughs> um, yeah. And there's a part where uh, they talk about, you know, that the filmmaker is usually here for Q and a when these films are shown. 
if he's there, you might ask questions such as, why would anybody make this film? Um, and in that way, beyond it just being a unexpectedly amusing way to sit through 45 minutes of pure text, um, it's also, I think, a good instructional way to approach filmmaking in general of like, yeah, every filmmaker who does adventurous, interesting, strange work knows the kind of responses it will elicit. And usually those answers are within the film itself. And this film even says directly, like, maybe we'll even address those in the course of this film. So I, they don't say this part, but like, maybe just continue to watch it and you'll get your, the answers you're looking for. Um, but then it finds other ways to like upset the formalism of it. Cause like each word appears on screen one at a time, but not for the same duration or as you said, the same size. So, mm-hmm. you know, one of the questions he suspects an audience might ask is why not make this a book? And that quickly becomes pretty evident that like there's things that the film is doing that a book can't do. It can control how long you're reading each word. It can control how big yeah. or how small the letters are. And then it's similar point, to uh, one second in Montreal, that it's a series of, of of still images but it has to be a movie because the the duration is so uh important yeah totally um and then shoot lost my train of thought oh yeah at some point no it's all good at some point he um is like i I can't remember if he like references people who might have come in late or whatever he's like let's recap the entire movie and then just like (laughs) speeds through the entire text of the film and like way too fast for anybody to ever read but it kind of becomes like graphically interesting just to watch um and then ends on, I thought, a pretty fitting and somewhat moving uh, quote that kind of addresses the whole enterprise at all. Um, yeah, I'd say next to Wavelength, off the top of my dome, this is probably my second favorite uh, Michael Stone yeah. film. Now, so because I'm going by IMDb, IMDb says I don't have another one for 20 years, although based on Letterboxd, I do have one. So uh, okay, what's your it. next based on IMDb? Uh, let's see see did i see oh, i did watch prelude um but there's not much to say about it it's an extremely short film it's um well imdb has listed six minutes the version i had is three minutes so i'm not sure who was incorrect here um, maybe you watched it at, at 2x speed yeah right just trying to <laughs> do the the gen z streaming hack um it's just some people in a room talking about going to see um, like an artistic exhibition or a show or something like that. I, I watched very last minute packing it in. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned, it's extremely short. Um, speaking of his unexpected eroticism, a woman does very randomly take her top off in it, which is like completely out of place. And I was like, okay, well, fine. Um, but that, that does happen. I'm guessing your next one is Corpus Callisum. Yeah. Did you watch this? Yes. Oh, very cool. I loved it. Yes. Yeah. Very cool. And also just like, um, hats off to Michael Snow for being an artist who like has been working since the 1950s and then in the 21st century being so willing to, uh, adopt new, um, yeah. new tricks and new technology. It felt like, um, and again, this is something that was in one of the essays, but I swear I had this thought myself. Sure. Sure. Um, is that it reminded me of like George Melier or, or like early, like people who were um, just like curious to see what they could do with the technological tricks that were available to yeah. them, you know? So this has like, uh, there's a, there's a shot where like, well, don't like two guys get into a fight and then they literally like turn into like one big, like 
mush, I think. Yeah. But then there's also a part where two guys try to go through a doorway at the same time, and then the image turns them into the shape of the doorway, and then they leave the doorway, and they're still like this, really like, like that, that rectangular image, <laughs> walking side by side. Um, yeah, there's a lot of fun stuff here, including I would say of what I saw the most overtly erotic image, which is a guy who has an erection and then a graphic representation of a penis keeps going across the entire room to the other side of the room where we find a waiting woman, like on her knees uh, and her skirt hiked up. Yeah. I guess I tend to use the term erotic as in like, there's something actually sexy about it. There was nothing really sexy about that. No, no, it's, <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, to give like a brief idea of the general architecture of it, there's basically like an office space and um, a living room space. And the film kind of alternates between those two spaces and with some like stock setups of, you know, in the office space meetings and people arriving at work getting coffee, all that kind of stuff. And in the home yeah. space, mostly just kind of watching TV, saying hi after a long day of work, kind of just like familiar setups onto which he can... Uh, I was going to say project generally, but quite literally project um, all kinds of experimentations with the digital form, many of which kind of have like that lo-fi, I don't know, like adult swim kind of effects stuff yeah, to it. Yeah. Um, all of which are really strange and unexpected. A lot of which reminded me of like Twin Peaks, the return in the way that that could be like kind of lo-fi, but also kind of beautiful and exciting yeah. to see somebody play with. Um and which just gets, I mean, it's stranger and stranger to the point where like halfway through the film, the end credits play, I like move my mouse to be like, that can't be right. Oh, okay. Well, I guess I'll yeah. just keep watching and find out. Um, very Gaspar no of him. Yes. Yes. Um, but yeah, I, it's hard. I guess it's hard to really, at least for me, know how to talk about this film beyond just the experimentation of it. But that was so enlivening. That, yeah. that was kind of enough for me, but there's it's possible it was working for me in ways that I am not able to quite put into words. Um, one thing I loved uh, in the living room was there's a bunch of shit on the wall. And I don't know if you, because you were maybe watching a higher res version than I was, I don't know if you clocked that that stuff wasn't really on the wall until it started disappearing. Um, yeah, it, it took for it to start disappearing for me to... Yeah, good. Yeah. And I, that was one thing that I that I found, like, it's, yeah, when when you watch enough movies in a, that are within a, a different type of realm of expectation, I guess. Yeah. Uh, when you start to recalibrate things that wouldn't have been exciting if I were, if I had just been watching, you know, a bunch of Indiana Jones movies or something suddenly <laughs> become very exciting. So like stuff disappearing suddenly or reappearing on the wall, uh, it got a big reaction out of me. Yeah. Um, uh, including the walking woman is, is, uh, is on the wall, um, or at least a cropped version of her. Um, yeah, I, uh, this is the longest one I watched, uh, cause I didn't watch the region central or, Grandma's nephew, but uh, or what was the other one that you said? Uh, presence is also like feature? yeah, presence is about an hour and a half. It's a little yeah, bit so just slightly longer than this. Yeah, this is ninety two minutes. Um, and uh, yeah, I really liked it. Um, it the oh, no, there's some other note that I wanted to make about it, which is lost to me now. I, I, I off the top of the dome though. Um some of the other fun stuff that takes place is like in the living room space, 
there's kind of like a child and then like a husband and wife who switch clothes, which is yeah. very amusing. Um, oh, I remember what I was like. You do occasionally hear, I'm guessing Michael Snow on the soundtrack directing the actors, yes. which I forgot that's to right. note is a part of Presence as well. And I'm curious if that's a part of many of his other films, but it's kind of an interesting extra layer on it um, that to me didn't diminish the effect of like the playfulness or how um, kind of absorbing it was. It just became another part of the oral landscape. Uh, I can't wait to move on to 2002's Solar Breath. I don't know if you watched this, speaking of very short ones, only five minutes. Uh, yeah, so and this I is... I loved it so much. It's technically only five minutes, but it was designed to play on an hour-long loop. Um, oh, okay. Which is like, interesting. And, and I, I could even, I could watch this for an hour, too, oh, by the way. absolutely, yeah. And so there's much Googling involved in my part to make sure that the five minutes represented the amount of footage that was shot, but that's I'm pretty sure that's the case. Yeah, so it's just a shot, uh, and this is... Do you know uh, what format is this? Is a digital camera? Um, um, it looks uh, like digital. Like the look is yeah, yeah. But I'm look. not sure if like it's just a shitty transfer either. My guess yeah. is just for the time period is that it probably was digital. Yeah. So it's just a shot of a window um, on a nice but a little windy day, and the curtain keeps on sort of billowing in with the wind and then snapping back against the window frame and making this like really satisfying sound. Yeah. Um, and you don't see any people, but you hear people in the house. Um, but uh, to go back to what I was saying way earlier about like expectation and things turning like suspenseful or tense. Like I kept looking forward to the next. Sure. Uh, the next snapback of the of the curtain, which is not, you know, unlike One Second in Montreal, it's not on a timer, you know, it's not on a cam like the region central. It's up to Mother Nature or whatever. Yeah. So you get to like uh, feel this tension of like, oh, this one's going to billow a little longer, and then it's going to snap back. Yeah. Um, it actually reminded me of this uh, and and other things that I, I I should have mentioned this earlier, but uh, the Chantal Ackerman room, uh, the room or the chambre uh, yeah. is the short that's just. Um, I can't remember how long that one is, like 10 minutes or so. Uh, yeah, 10 sounds about minutes. right. It's just the camera spinning around her room slowly. Um, and it's a similar thing. And I know that Chantal Ackerman was an admirer of Michael Snow. I I would like to think it was vice versa as well, but I know she was. Um, uh, um, and it's, it's a similar thing where in La Chambre, like, you start to be so tense, like, so looking forward. So, like, under the edge of your seat, like, expectation of, like, is she going to be in a different position next time it comes around to the bed? And then like in LaShawn, when the camera suddenly changes direction and goes the other way, it's huge. It's a right. huge moment. Uh, and I, uh, I don't know what, what your LaShawn was 1972. So um, seems like about the same time that, that he was working. Uh, but yeah, solar breath is another one that made me think about this. And yeah, I could absolutely have this on an hour long loop. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, as far as Michael Snow's taste goes, uh, he, so I think we talked about at the top of the show, the sight and sound list, but he submitted his own list, which only had four films on it. Three of which were his, one of which was Charlie Chaplin's The Gold Rush. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you read that story? Uh, a couple of people posted on Twitter after he died about Chantal Ackerman introducing a screening of one of his films. No, I don't think so. Um, 
and it was at some like sort of independent screening space and she got there and she was like appalled at the quality of the screen or like it might have been just like they were projecting it against the white wall that wasn't mm-hmm. even, like, painted with the like the right kind of paint and like uh went off on the place and like for disrespecting michael snow by showing his work like this um uh and kept talking about it to the point where eventually the audience was like we get it we still want to watch the movie <laughs> um but good for her for standing up for him yeah somebody's got it okay so next up for me in imdb terms is see you later which even though that was actually shot in 1990 um oh yeah i've got that one too okay yeah so this is a single shot that's is at 18 18 minutes yeah um it consists entirely of michael snow himself sitting at a desk standing up walking across the room saying goodbye to a coworker. It's like a workspace saying goodbye to like a a, a woman in another desk, putting on his coat and walking out the door. That's all that happens, but it is, it's super, super slow motion. Um, I guess like it was shot in very slow motion and then slowed down even further in, 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 in post-production to make it uh, uh, incredibly slow. Um, but again, I feel like I'm a broken record. It's the same thing of like when you like strip something down to that every every moment becomes huge. Every every like um every change, you know, the way that he like the way that his coat sort of billows a little bit when he puts it on his back or whatever is um uh, is is fascinating. Um there's I should also mention it's not I said it's a workspace, but like Corpus Callosum, it's very sort of fake and stagey looking yeah. and p- painted in like bright pi- primary colors. And then also the, when he finally leaves at the end, he leaves into, I guess, a hallway where there's just a super bright light. Um, yeah. Which, which is uh, also fun because as he's, as the door is closing behind him, you get to see that sort of light become smaller and smaller and narrower yeah. and narrower. Um, yeah. This is another really, really fun one to watch. Uh for 18 minutes yeah i think it's you know about right at that i i guess i in this one kind of missed a lot of the complications that he introduces in some of the other work where you have you start with like a very distinct defined formal setup and then kind of find some way to twist it or uh, upset it during the course of it this one kind of just plays out exactly like it is expected to at the beginning and kind of plays through so at 20 minutes that's fine nothing wrong with that but not one that really stood out to me in in all of these uh, and then did you watch WVLNT Wavelength for those who don't have the time? No, but I love that title. <laughs> yeah. So it's Wavelength is 45 minutes. He literally just chopped it into three 15 minute. Uh, so he doesn't speed it up. He chops it into three 15 minute pieces and then superimposes them. And you watch all three, you know, oh. <laughs> the, the, the beginning, the middle and the end laid over one another. Huh. Um uh, which is is very fun. Also, superimposition is uh, we haven't really talked about it, but it's something he does a lot. From what I understand, um, from what I read of the script for Ramo's nephew, there's a lot of uh, superimposition in in there. Where there's like a bed that appears and disappears, but someone like lays down where the bed would be, and then the superimposition they're on the bed. Um, mm-hmm. Clearly, something that he he was very interested in, um, and we'll get to it next in my in my final uh film too but uh yeah i mean wavelengths those who don't have the time it's just it's just wavelength chopped up um it did weirdly the the this one 
was of higher quality on YouTube. So I felt like watching oh. <laughs> it, I, in retrospect, like I was like, oh, I see more now yeah. even with these superpositions. Like I see the room better now than I did in the, the shitty YouTube rip. But um, yeah, once again, it has that loud sound as well. There you go. Uh, what yeah. What else do so you have? Is the, okay. How does the soundtrack work if it's all the shots kind of third on top of each other? The soundtrack is also on top of each other. Oh, so God. you're hearing the low sine wave and the high sine wave at the same, same time. Uh, Might give yeah. me epilepsy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so I only have one more. Yeah. And your next one and is also my list, or is also my next one. Uh, but I have the two after that as well. Okay, so my next one and uh, competitor with wavelengths, my favorite is short story or as superimposed over one another, shorty yeah. is, is how it is officially known. Um, but it is the word short story sort of like imposed over each, each other. And this is one that I like, I loved so much. And I remember like even that night and like the next morning, still trying to think like, how am I going to, when I'm on the podcast, how am I going to explain the conceit here? I know I was having exactly the same problem. <laughs> so it's, it's a one shot scene, right? Yeah. Where, um, a woman answers the door, a man, a painter comes in with the painting they've made, he's made. Um, but then you see that they're also like, lovers but then they go into the room where the, the her husband who has commissioned the painting is standing there he hangs the painting and then the husband like confronts him about uh sleeping with his wife and someone throws wine in someone else's face he throws and, wine in the artist's face because the okay. artist is like well he doesn't say this exactly but something like well at least i'm giving it to her you know oh yeah yeah that's right it's like more uh, than you're doing yeah something like that Oh, like, yeah, one of us should be something like that. Um, and so he throws the wine in the artist's face and then the artist leaves. So the camera pans back to the foyer, um, and the woman like bids farewell to, or to the artist, right? Does he leave? Does he actually leave? He does actually leave. You missed the part where he smashes the painting atop the man's head. (laughs) Right. Yes. Which has a very satisfying thunk to it. (laughs) Yeah. That's great too. So that's the one shot, but with the superimposition, when, when the movie starts, you see that whole shot, but also he has started the second half halfway through. So it's like, a, um, what do you call when you're singing like row, row, row your boat in the round, you know? Sure. Yeah. That's kind of how the movie plays out is it starts, with the, you see the first half and the second half, and then you see the second half and the first, like they're constantly layered over each other in such a way. And the, 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 uh, framing is so precise. This is another very fake, like set yeah. looking thing. Everything's so <laughs> precise that um even like how, how long does it go on because you you see the whole scene like several times minutes. yeah you see it like minutes, five times that, in a row at least yeah because that scene yeah. it, well with it being broken up it's probably only like three minutes with the two layers you see it a lot yeah and but i and i so i kept discovering new things or realizing that I was wrong about certain things with the totally. position, like realizing where the table was like, yeah. Oh, there's not a table where he hangs the painting. The table is by the front door. Right. I couldn't tell because it started the same way. Um, uh, there's also a really, once you see it enough times there, because of the superimposition, there is the suggestion that the husband doesn't know his wife's cheating on him but learns it from 
the first half of the scene because the way it works out in the second half, the husband is watching the thing right and the greeting in front of him but not really it's just superimposed to look like that but that's like that's like a kind of a fun uh wrinkle of uh of that. I, I could have like with solar breath i could have watched this longer because I, I i felt like i was still discovering things about it uh when it was over yeah i mean it takes a few repetitions to even kind of put the scene together and figure out like yeah. how it fits together like just narratively and it's not like it's a complicated scene, you know, it's a very basic jealous husband set up and lovers quarrel, that kind of stuff. But just to like assess what you're watching, it takes a couple rounds to do that. And then, yeah, figure out the ge- geography was a whole adventure because um, the film like starts in, yeah, the kind of like foyer entry area, but also kind of starts in the living room because there's a pan separating the two spaces. I, it took yeah. me for some reason. I just couldn't figure out in the first couple of viewings, like how he was getting from one space to the other, because there's a point where they cross the two paths yeah. as yeah. in the first half of the scene, he's walking into the living room. And at the exact same time in the second half of the scene, he's walking out of the living room back After to the, the door and thrown in his face. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so there's like a trade of where the doors are, sort of because it feels like it almost feels like an Escher painting kind of thing where like suddenly he's exiting in a place that didn't make sense for it to be originally because the pans are crossing and relocating the door space. None of this is making sense, but like you said, it's almost impossible to describe. And there was a time there that I thought there were two doors, like two sets of doors. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, And so it took me a couple of you, a couple of rounds to get that out of my head and recognize ultimately that's a pretty simple setup, but its genius is in that simplicity and in the architecture of uh, executing it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just the, the, I mean, it's very different from see you later and that it's so um, uh, uh, it's layered as opposed to see you later being just the, the one shot, but it's a similar thing of just like watching something that seems simple closely enough and over and over again, Yeah, uh, it becomes fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I was very good. So that's the end for me. You've got two more, from what I understand. Yeah, that I can go through pretty pretty quickly. Um, First is uh, 2008's Puccini uh, Conservato, which is a series of shots of um, mostly like equipment. Um, There's like a speaker and like a soundboard, um, while this like beautiful opera plays over it. I don't know if you're into film equipment, it's pretty tight. It's a cool. 10 minutes, nothing really to, uh, overly trouble one's time, but, um, pretty, pretty cool little side project. Cityscape is the more interesting one. That's his last film according to IMDb. And as far as I know, um, and which I can't remember if this is the one, I think it might've been made for IMAX actually. And you can kind of see why it's a 10 minute film of um, downtown Toronto over you've been to, to Toronto. What's the big like waterway that runs along you, the city? It's the river. You'd think, you'd think I know Lake. I don't know. <laughs> Look, I, I know where the screening rooms are. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Um, a lot of water, um, but it's kind of like looking over the water at the um, cityscape as you would guess from. Looks like it's Lake Ontario. All right. Sounds good. Um, as you would guess from the title and then the camera does these like really cool 
twists and turns and pans and stuff, um, which, yeah, if I'm right about this being the IMAX one would be really stunning to see an IMAX. Um, but on my dinky little laptop screen still played pretty invigoratingly. Um, it kind of has the same idea as like La Region Central where it's playing with where the camera can be and where it can move in uh, unexpected ways, but much shorter and obviously then less opportunities to move around. Um, so very cool film. Okay. And that's all I got. Uh, yeah. But I think we did um, a good service here. Uh, I was um, very happy to uh, become acquainted with the films of, of Michael Snow. Um, I hope that um, listeners care. You know? Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, uh, just kind of, I was like I said, I kind of deflated by how little um, interaction the Straub Houlet episode got. Um, so I hope people are willing to, some listeners are willing to follow us into the more um, esoteric uh, areas of, of cinema. Yeah. I mean, for those who have made it this far in the episode without knowing too much of Michael Snow's work, it, it is more readily accessible in both meanings of the word in that like you can pick it up on youtube pretty easily uh you don't have to pay a rental fee and it's just easier to watch than the strapulous stuff um and it's a varying lengths you know you want to dip in for one of his 10 minute films get a taste of it see if that works for you keep going yeah. from there yeah like i said solo breath five minutes yeah uh, one, of, one of my faves all right um well yeah thanks for going through this with me uh scott um you can Find us at battleshipretention.com. Like I said, there's the GoFundMe for Tyler there. You can email us, email me at David at battleshipretention.com. Follow me on Twitter at Davey Pretension. Follow me on Letterboxd at David Bax. Uh, check out my other podcast. It's called The One Where I Met Your Mother, uh, where my wife and I watch an episode of Friends and an episode of How I Met Your Mother every week. We're kicking off season five this week. This, um, Woo. Uh, so that's that's exciting. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's where you can find me. Scott, where, where can people find you? Uh, yeah, Twitter Rail of Tomorrow, Letterboxd. Um, and yeah, just uh, thanks for suggesting this episode. I was apprehensive about it at first because I hadn't seen any Michael Snow films and I'd long wanted to right. see Wavelength, especially in a theater. And I still absolutely will if I ever get the chance. And I think yeah. actually this is a good thing I should plug. Uh, Acropolis Cinema in LA is, or, no, it's not Acropolis, sorry. That's um, I got Mezzanine um film is a relatively new uh screening series in la and they are doing a michael snow evening at the end of this month uh april 30th um they're showing wavelength standard time and see you later um i think all on 16 millimeter um yes it's correct all on 16 millimeter so if you can make that i highly recommend you do so all right uh well thanks again scott thank you at home for listening we'll get you next time bye Bye.